Welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing's Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse by background and I live in North Yorkshire. Joining me today as co-host is friend of the podcast, Kendall Moran. Kendall served in the army for 10 years before retraining and joining the Queen Alexandra's Royal Army Nursing Corps. She's a member of the RCN Professional Nursing Committee and she also co-leads the RCN's Network for Newly Registered Nurses. Hello again, Kendall. Hello, thanks for having me back. Great to have you back. And Kendall, when you last joined us to co-host the episode we did on gender and nursing, we discussed how women have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Now midwives and primary care nurses are at the centre of efforts to encourage pregnant women to take up the COVID vaccine. Do you think this will improve uptake? Yeah, I really hope so. We know that nurses and midwives are among the most trusted professions. And so our advice and role modelling around vaccines should go a long way towards relieving people's concerns. Um, We're also uniquely placed to provide advice on these matters, as we are predominantly patient facing and tend to have more one to one contact with our patients than some of our colleagues. So nurses in particular are everywhere. We're in healthcare settings, including primary healthcare, where this drive is taking place, but we're in communities and people's homes. So we are in a really good position to be able to educate and reassure. I think that's really important because we're seeing that the overwhelming majority of pregnant women hospitalised with COVID-19 have not been vaccinated. And we know that the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation has confirmed that the jab has been shown to be effective and safe for women carrying a baby. So we're in a really strong position to make a difference and hopefully we will. Today we have two very special guests, the past and the present presidents of the RCN, to talk to us about why they got into nursing in the first place, why they stood as president and what it's like to lead the profession during the pandemic. So let's start with our current president. Two months in, I think, Dr. Denise Chaffer. Denise is currently the Director of Safety and Learning at NHS Resolution and is both a registered nurse and a midwife by background. Hello, Denise, and welcome to Nursing Matters. Oh, hi. Hello, Rachel. Thank you very much for inviting me today. And am I right that it's about two months, Denise? Yes, just two months only. And where are you speaking to us from, Denise, today? Um, I'm actually speaking to you. It's a work day for me at NHS Resolution, but I'm actually working from home today. And home is? Home is in Epsom in Surrey. Lovely. So, Denise, we're going to come on to talk about sort of how and why you got into nursing a bit a bit later on. But first of all, today the RCN launches Your Pay, Your Say, our consultative ballot for NHS staff on the 3% pay award. Can you just tell us what a consultative ballot is and, and why it's important for RCN members to take part? Yes, yeah, so all of the RCN members that work within the NHS will receive um, the consultative ballot. And part of the RCN is it's a membership organisation. So any policy decisions or approaches that we might take on behalf of the members require us to consult with the members and get their views. So we would urge everybody to to look at their email when they receive it and to complete that and, get, and feedback their views. And reflecting on her last year at the RCN, we are also joined by our outgoing president, Professor Dame Anne-Marie Rafferty. Anne-Marie is a Professor of Nursing Policy at King's College London. Hello, Anne-Marie. How are you and where are you? I'm very well, Kendall, and it's just great to hear from you and from Rachel and to be teaming up with Denise. And I'm in uh, N1 in London, 
So I'm, I'm sitting at Holdman's as well, actually, and working from home. Great to have you on. So what do you think about the ballot and the wider RCN Summer of Action campaign? And why is it important for our, our nurses to take part? This ballot is so crucial, isn't it, to gauging views and, and opinions on what the next steps in terms of any action that happens might be. And I think, as Denise has already said, I mean, we need to have as many voices out there actually supporting the campaign for fair pay. And this has been a long haul. It's a long road. It's a a tremendous struggle that we have in our hands to try and shift the dial on that number. And uh, I'm sure that after what people have been through, you know, there's a lot of uh, high-octane emotion out there and it's converting that emotion into action, which is what we really need to do now. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Before we talk more to both of you about being president of the RCN, let's talk a bit about how and why you both got into the profession in in the first place. So maybe coming to you first, Anne-Marie, how did you get into nursing? What brought you into the profession? Thanks, Rachel. Well, I guess my mum was a nurse and she was uh, inclined to tell me stories about her nursing career. First, she trained as a fever nurse in the 1930s. That just shows you how old I am in Glasgow. And subsequently, as a general nurse and a midwife during Second World War, and entered the civil nursing reserve. And I think particularly her stories about nursing prisoners of war during the Second World War ignited my imagination and both sparked an interest in history as well as as nursing. And uh, that's possibly how I ended up doing both. But mum didn't have much confidence in my practical capabilities, and I think that was probably well-founded. And I was fortunate to be close to Edinburgh University. And this tradition in Scotland of people going to their local university. And Edinburgh University just happened to be the first university in Edinburgh to offer a a degree in nursing so I thought that and calculated that well maybe this was a a good bet because if it turned out that I was completely hopeless in the practical then at least I might if successful of course be able to gain a degree and if I was reasonably good at the practical and managed to pass my GNC exams then um, that was a a win-win so yeah I, 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 I saw the opportunity for nursing both to be something that was intellectually stimulating and enabling, as well as, you know, doing some kind of good and contributing something to society. And and having done that that training in, in that way, did you then always look to pursue a sort of an academic route into the profession or did that come later? I think you're so kind of transfixed and mesmerised by getting to grips with the, we call it practical, but it's much more than practical, isn't it? It's psychomotor kind of skills, ergonomics, aesthetics, and organisational capability, as well as, you know, the EQ, the IQ, and the sort of OQ all come together in nursing. And I mean, that's a really tall order. But I think, you know, the theoretical study was in some ways, more straightforward than actually the challenge of placements for all the reasons that I think we're very familiar with. 
not least the logistics of just getting to placements and doing shift work and dealing with all the, you know, the, the kind of cultural and psychodynamics of the workplace. So originally, you know, I just wanted to be a, a cracking clinician and, and ward sister. But I was always very keen on research, even as an undergraduate, and very fortunate that we had a nursing research unit at Edinburgh. And uh, I suppose I was a bit of a positive deviant in the sense that I was one of the few undergraduates who used to go to the seminars of the nursing research unit. And, well, that also involved going to salons and parties, you know, where there were nice snacks and perhaps even drinks being served. So, you know, there were probably other incentives <laughs> or material. But no, honestly, I, I could see here here was a group of people in a way of, I suppose, working that, that I was I was really drawn to because I think we were baptised in a, an ethos of being critics of care as well as advocates of, of new practices and change agents through through that course and that approach. So it fulfilled several different types of uh, aspirations, I suppose. It's really great to hear your story, Emery, and we're really glad that you were inspired to become a nurse and then, and also an academic. Through my work with the RCN Newly Registered Nurses Network, I do actually encounter quite a lot of aspiring academics. I wonder if you have any advice for nurses just starting out in their career who might want to pursue that pathway. Well, I, I think... Lobbying and petitioning, Kendall, for support for CPD. I mean, getting on a pathway into a master's programme or joining a programme where you are going to get preset, you know, quality preceptorship supervision and support. I mean, I think that's what it's all about. And increasingly, we have got to invest a lot more in providing CPD, or I prefer to call it postgraduate training and education across the career cycle, much as doctors have, you know, these kind of entitlements. And so I would say find an environment where you think you're going to be able to get that kind of support. And if if you're an aspiring academic, don't hang around. You know, you can run the twin career track of clinical and academic and you can kind of decide what you would like the the emphasis and the bias of, of that to be. I mean, after I'd qualified and worked up to deputy sister, I then switched and did a clinical academic role for a while because I didn't want to leave the the clinical entirely. So that gave me an opportunity to keep connected, but also to explore clinical research and uh, test test that side of things out as well. So it's, uh, yeah, the many opportunities to stretch, as you say, to stretch yourself in different directions and hopefully conquer a few along the way. Thank you. Yeah, this is that's something we work on in the network quite a lot, allowing people to find somewhere that supports them um, to pursue whatever it is they want to do. If that's outside of the clinical sphere, then that's great because there's lots of different avenues for nursing. So I know many of my peers will be really, really keen to hear your advice, and particularly after you were named one of the 70 most influential nurses in 70 years of the NHS. What an incredible achievement. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I've no idea how that came about, quite frankly, Kendall. It just popped up, you know, uh, no scooby at all about how that process happened. And I was as shocked and surprised as probably all the other people on the list. And I'm sure there's many more other people who could have been on that list as, as well. Maybe they just did it alphabetically and thought, there's that poor soul there. Give, give her a chance. 
But yeah, I mean, it was a great honour. I think also having been uh, a historian of nursing through the NHS, I interviewed Dame Elizabeth Cocaine, who was the first chief nurse of England. And she was also on that list. So I thought, wow, you know, and she, gosh, she was a fascinating and amazing woman. Yeah, the RCN gave me that opportunity very early on to do an oral history project on nurse leadership. And I was able to come into contact with some of the greats in our profession, even stretching back to the, the very origins of the National Health Service and how nursing was or was not able to influence policy from the, the inception of, of the service and sort of tagged that and took that, that line through. I was having a little read of the of the document that outlines the 17 most influential nurses before we started recording today. Um, I really recommend people looking it up if they haven't seen it because it's such an inspiration. Thanks, Amory. Coming now to Denise and the same question, really, Denise. How did you get into nursing? What brought you into the profession? So it's really interesting listening to Anne-Marie because actually it's incredibly similar. My grandmother was a fever nurse and I might be wrong about this, but I think that was an original kind of registration point back in the day. She's somebody that I always looked up to. You know, she was an incredible person. But it was actually um, when I was at college and I was doing my elbows, I didn't go to a particularly good secondary school. So I then went to sixth form college and tried to do my A-levels. And I worked in a local hospital in what is was would be now known as an A&E department, but it's a casualty. It was known then as their cleaner. And I was absolutely fascinated. I found it really, really interesting. My job was to kind of clean and polish what they called the bowling alley, which was the centre bit down all of the, the bays um, in this A&E department. It seems very strange to imagine them being set up in that way now. Um, I, I then became, I applied to be, I was what we call, we say now, healthcare assistant and nursing auxiliary on an elderly care ward. And then I was very fortunate to get into my nurse training because I did not have very good academic qualifications. I had this sort of odd mix of what was then was GCSEs, grade ones, and I had one A-level, which got me in, thankfully, into uh, the registered nurse programme. So um, my kind of view would be is that certainly if I could get in, you know, it was really quite a big effort and they took a chance on me and I'm very, very pleased um, that I was able to get into nursing um, sort of back in 1978, that was... I love that concept of a bowling alley in the middle of a and which sounds highly dangerous. But. That's what they used to call it, um, because you had to buff it and you had to shine it so you could see your face in it. Such pride we had back then. <laughs> and, um, and I think it's really interesting how, how many people you talk to who are nurses who have a nurse somewhere in, in the family who's led them into the profession. From that start, Denise, then obviously things have changed a lot. Here you are as Director of Safety and Learning at NHS Resolutions. Tell us a bit about kind of the journey that took you from a difficult entry into nurse training to where you are today. 
So I think in, in a similar way to Anne-Marie's described, I think I've always been driven by the need to try and make a difference. I've probably been quite a pain all the years of people that have had to work with me asking the why question, why do we do that? I've been quite motivated to try and make things better. So I worked in a, a surgical ward um, when I first qualified. I've worked then in the community, I worked in gynae. And then after I worked on the, the gynecology wards, then I decided to do my midwifery. And I think I've genuinely been motivated to thinking probably I can give the best possible care when I'm on the front line to the patients I look after. But I want to be confident that that happens to everybody else. And so I think I've been driven to get into more senior positions to have a bit more influence over the way everybody cares consistently for patients. You know, I'm not particularly academic and I think um, it is fairly unbelievable that I've managed to get a PhD. Even my own um, PhD supervisor did say to me, the trouble with you, Denise, is you just can't write, which was very motivating. <laughs> um, but I think it was a passion really to to try and learn. I, I am a big reader. I read everything and, and anything that people put in front of me, I'm fascinated and I want to learn. I've always wanted to. And I, I did the diploma in nursing course, which was a University of London programme where I met a, a, a kind of number of my colleagues who were actually brought me into the RCN, actually, um, back in 1988. And that programme was really difficult. And in fact, we started the course with about 25 of us and only about five of us completed it. Mm. So that was a massive achievement. And in the middle of that, um, I had a baby and was in hospital for 11 weeks. And so I kind of look back on that and think, well, I managed to achieve that. And then I went on and did um, education degree. And then I did my master's so I think it's been a bit of a chaotic pathway so I often say to people I give people a lot of careers advice is don't kind of base yourself on what I did is it was more chaos chaotic wanting to be better wanting to try and make things better and then um, you know getting into more senior positions to try and influence that and uh, but never forgetting what it's like to be on the front line you know I never forget that and I get huge pleasure working clinically eight years ago I actually took a career break and I worked in Australia for a year and I worked as a as an agency midwife which is fascinating on its own if we had time to talk about the concept of working as they call being on with the agency is what they call me um, but it was the pleasure and the privilege of being next to patients and their families at very very critical parts of their life when I worked on the community um, a few years ago I worked in what was then called terminal care it's now palliative care and I think both whether it's beginning of life or the end of life there is just no greater privilege than being with patients and their families and trying to make a difference and I think the job I'm in now I'm the director for safety and learning so obviously still have a passion for patient safety but also trying to help the NHS learn from harm and how we can be far better in our response to harm, how we can support families and patients and the carers. But also, I've got a real interest now in how we can support staff, um, because I think very much part of everything the RCN stands for is if you look after your nurses, they will give the best care possible to their patients. And it's not either or, you have to do both.
pandemic has posed monumental challenges for nursing and for health and care services. But what's it like to lead the profession during the pandemic? And how has it affected nursing politics and policy? Anne-Marie, COVID hit us during your term of office and brought enormous challenges to the RCN. How was it being president at that time and facing those challenges alongside RCN members? One word, scary. Mm. (laughs) I think, Rachel, and I'm sure it was scary for everyone. It was scarier for people who were in the clinical areas. I had COVID right at the very beginning as well. So when there was great uncertainty over what, what this new disease actually was and trying to figure that out on top of everything else. But I, I think there was just a high level of anxiety and I'm sure many people would have been actually thinking about running away. But the incredible thing is that people actually didn't run away. They rose to the challenge and they stuck there with patients and their families and took huge risks and shouldered massive levels of responsibility. Being moved around like, you know, some people would have felt definitely, I think, you got this impression like pawns on a chessboard being redeployed, taken way out of their comfort zone, where they've been working with teams of people that they knew and kind of catapulted into environments where they were basically having to fast form these flash teams and upskill, you know, at lightning at lightning pace and speed. I think there was a lot of fear, a lot of panic around and the RCN having to be a rational respondent to this and acting on behalf of members. And I think actually that the organization and you know its its leadership and Dame Donna and and council and all of the people who came to the fore actually getting the message out there and articulating it very clearly and showing as happens in crises, moments of national crisis, and you see this of course throughout history, where nurses become this ever present and reassuring presence to the public. And on those night shifts, despite all of those challenges and taking on incredible risks and going to amazing lengths to protect patients and their families and their own families as well. We we heard about one nurse who's lived three months in a care home so that she could be there for, for patients and protect her family. And care homes cracking down on agency nurses for that very reason and putting, you know, their their own staff under enormous strain. And another nurse who was on women's hour, I think, the other week, who'd lived nine months with her husband in a caravan to protect her mum who was living on the house. So I mean these are extraordinary stories. I just think that initial kind of response and what nurses were prepared to do and did was incredible. And it was our role really within the organisation to demonstrate that we were trying to, by putting pressure on the government, mainly and employers through the Health and Safety Executive and many other lobbying channels, and this goes across the four countries, all of which had different types of experiences and And this guidance, you know, that was changing on a daily basis 
I guess Kendall might have views on military operations as well and, and the analogy or appropriateness of it. But actually, I think that is something of which the college should be rightly proud. I firmly agree. I have done some operational tours and there are some parallels to what nurses have gone through um, over the last 18 months for sure. And Denise, uh, you're obviously following Amory into this role. We've already heard a little bit about what motivates you, but what was your manifesto and what are your main priorities during the presidency? So thank you, Kendall. So it is interesting just listening to Anne-Marie because some of my reflections of the response to the pandemic are are some of the things that have have kind of driven me into this role, really. And I I think for me, I've connected with quite a lot of nurses and I I think my motto would be nurses are everywhere. And I think, you know, I had a a friend of mine who's a chief nurse who was literally having to um, create critical care beds, you know, sort of on overnight um, in in some of those and others that have worked in public health and are doing the guidance for care homes and others that have done the curriculum for the vaccination programme. Some of those others that prepared the students who went into practice and the palliative care approach. And so one of my, a family member of mine at the beginning of the pandemic, nearly every single one of her patients died, even though there were expected deaths, you know, they were rapid at that time. So for me, it's part of the manifesto is reaching out to everybody that was involved and has been brought together because I talked about shared purpose, but people have come together in a way Um, We knew that nurses would and could, but I think they are absolutely everywhere. And I think the following the pandemic is also going to be incredibly challenging. We're already hearing about the huge pressures that are there. So for me, part of the manifesto is recognising nurses are everywhere um, and I think everyone have their voice. I think areas like mental health community services who have had to work in very different ways, trying to manage some very complex situations in a world where it's not so easy to be face-to-face with people. Not everyone can cope with the technology. So I stood for being president to to do whatever I can to try and give that wider voice. So we don't always hear from every aspect of nursing. So I spoke to some palliative care nurses and asked you know, what they wanted from the RCN. The message is, is that we need everyone to get involved and to to be able to help us recognise how we represent the kind of wider nursing family. For me, my absolute passion is around fair and learning cultures. I think, as Anne-Marie's mentioned, staff wellbeing. We have seen that actually there is some improvement in recruitment into nursing and some huge interests, which is positive. But we've got to retain nurses. We've got a number of nurses that are going to be retiring. We need to be thinking about nurses that we've got in the profession and what it is that that they need. Uh, Very, very interested in the variations that we see, particularly around uh, disciplinary processes, which are hugely different around um, certainly across England and um, in the other three countries. The promotion opportunities um, that we see, if you look at the pay review body evidence, what we need to do in the equality, diversion and inclusion space to make sure that we include and give everyone opportunities. So it's a combination of all of those really that has brought me to where I am. But I think returning 
to this distributed leadership model. And I think actually, Kendall, this is something that is very much part of the military. It's always about building and developing our next leaders so that, you know, they can respond in the way that we've just seen the nursing response has been absolutely phenomenal. But how do we succession plan? How do we get more engagement? How do we get more leaders coming forward into positions at, at the Royal College of Nursing? How do we see this being everyone's college? So that's quite an ambitious agenda, and it certainly isn't something I'm going to achieve on my own. It's going to need everyone's support um, to do that. But I talk quite a lot about kindness, I think, in one of my recent articles. And I've been really um, humbled, really, about how well that's been received, because part of the way we're going to progress in the next few months and the years is to support each other, to work much harder on um, creating environments for, for everyone to thrive. So it's a combination of all, all of that. You have a vast portfolio to work <laughs> on there. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Wish you best of luck with all of that. So you, you've probably spoken about some of your challenges, but what challenges are you preparing to face? Because I'm an optimist and I'm generally overly positive about things, um, which may be a weakness or a strength, depending on your point of view, I just see things as opportunities. We've got some of our, a large percentage of our workforce that have been, the demands of them have been beyond anything that people would have ever expected to see. So the capacity of people to get involved in the things that I'm talking about is a challenge. But actually, what I think we have to do is is be very proud of this college and what it represents and what we can do together. So for me, I think finding enough time is always going to be a challenge. But the things I've learned in, in the last year or so and being in a, a arm's length body of the Department of Health and Social Care is what we did in response to the pandemic is to see what we could do to release as many staff back to the front line as we possibly could, all of my staff in my team to offer whatever support they can do. And so I think we've learned to work in a very different way. So we would have particularly done a lot of face-to-face events. We, we hold a lot of education and learning events, and we've learned to do that differently. And actually, we've got far greater reach. So we're talking to many, many more frontline clinicians now, and we can reach more people and I can do something like we're doing today which will hopefully have a wider reach and actually meet with people in the other countries which doesn't necessarily mean all of the traveling that would have happened in the past so some of the challenges that we've got are actually the opportunities it doesn't replace face-to-face and engagement and networking and I think that's why things like RCN Congress are so incredibly important to people because it brings people together with a shared purpose but I think we will be able to overcome the challenges because it matters and we've just shown the world, haven't we, how important nursing is and we need to to bring people together to, to support them so that we can continue to grow as a profession. Finally, we're returning to the issue of safe staffing and patient safety. It's something that really matters to nurses and to all of our listeners at Nursing Matters. So how can we ensure that the issue gets enough political airtime and, more importantly, policy action? Anne-Marie, you have a substantial body of research work that demonstrates that the link between nurse staffing and patient outcomes, including and, and critically safety. 
how would you in a few <laughs> in a few minutes how would you summarize that extensive evidence base i think the evidence base has become increasingly convincing and compelling to policymakers when i think back to the ooh, i think it was the 90s when i first got involved in staffing the patient outcomes type research there's a great deal of skepticism around about it in the upper echelons of the research community the health services research community i think the accumulation of evidence over time and the the running of of the narrative as well and the advocacy work of the college and also other national nursing associations and it has to be also be said the international council of nurses globally and especially over the last 18 months i think that message has come out loud and clear and the way in which that narrative is now this is some challenge in a way that it was previously almost dismissed it's a major way of getting to the table raising the alarm and the alerts over patient safety i know this is a passion for denise as well and obviously for the professional nursing committee and all this sit on that and some brilliant people alison leary and others and jane balls been on this podcast too you know this has been a huge global team effort over many decades and i think that we are getting the message through and you know when i talk to policy makers they are reading the papers in the lancet and the bmj and you know the high impact journals and they can't really refute that evidence i suppose it's then what do we do with that evidence you know because as Florence Nightingale herself said reports are not self-executive they have to be activated they have to be translated into a language either of legislation as we've seen in you know Scotland and 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 Wales and hopefully Northern Ireland and also in England too actually drafting language that captures the power of that evidence and gives it strength and and a sharpness to be able to do the job of improving patient safety but that's a comp- very complex operation and it can take many years as the campaign did in wales so we have to seize the moment and the windows of opportunity when they open i think we may hopefully have one here with the health and care bill and be able to push that through but whilst all the same being you know any law is only as good as the way in which it's codified and drafted and ensuring that you know that's as watertight as possible and marie you talked about sort of you know policy makers listening to the evidence around staffing is looking at, at harm one of the ways of actually breaking through with some of that evidence i do think it is rachel um has to be very clearly defined what harm actually is i mean it could be more catastrophic harm and at the extreme ends that probably denise sees or could be around missed care which we have also 
research, and I know that Jane spoke about that, Jane Ball, and has done a lot of research in that in that area. I think, you know, falls, and again, from incident reporting, we can pick up those signs and symptoms of contextual and environmental deficits and flaws that actually are the latent conditions under which harm itself occurs. But I also think there's a lot to be said for turning the narrative around. And we tend in the RCN, you know, we're always going on about the negative side. You know, if you say it's negative campaigning. And actually, I think there's a need to shift the narrative as well, or at least balance it up with positivity. What are the conditions under which really good care can be delivered? And what does that look like? One of the challenges we might have is, I mean, who really understands what good looks like? Or is it just something that we know by a sixth sense in nursing? And that's maybe one of the attributes of, of, of leadership, is that leaders set those kinds of standards through their kind of sensory inputs or feedback from, from care environments and then translate that through their sixth sense into something quite tangible. I think we could vary our narrative and actually that might be something which would pique the interest of, of policy makers and employers and decision makers. This is what we're really striving for in a, in a positive way rather than, you know, bludgeoning policymakers with, with kind of negativity. That turns people off, actually. And I think they get kind of fatigued over that. And I think that's a danger with how we articulate the case for safe staffing. And we're pretty vague about what safe is as well. You know, so policymakers rightly can say, well, so what is safe? You know, I mean, okay, it might be something that does correspond to the acuity and dependency scores from the Safer Nursing Care Tool, or it might not because of all the turbulence and change we've had in the system. I mean, we're doing a project on professional judgment and safe staffing decisions at the moment. So I think maybe varying the narrative, focusing on some of the positivity and really challenging ourselves to think about what good and safe do look like and specifying them. And actually, are our perceptions of safety, do they triangulate with patients? I can feel another whole episode coming on. (laughs) So I think we could talk for hours, but we've come to the end of the podcast. We'll be back in three weeks and we'd love to know what you would like us to talk about. So tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing by tweeting us at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters. We'll do our best to cover them in future episodes of Nursing Matters. Thanks to our special guests, Denise Chaffer. Thank you, Denise. Thank you. And Anne-Marie Rafferty. Pleasure. And of course, my co-host, Kendall Moran. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. And remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.